Okay, Daniel chapter 11. If you would find that in your Bibles, you can scroll or turn to that page where you find Daniel 11, and we'll be picking up in verse 36 today. We left off in verse 35 last week. And for our beginning, I was struck by this quote this week from Martin Luther. He said, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Those words really struck me because I started thinking about how often we get caught up in um, the physical things around us. Not that they're not important, we're called to steward those things, but we get caught up in those things being the reason that we exist. Um, My stuff, my job, um, the things that I want, the drive that I have is so often focused around a physical thing to acquire, something that we're looking to gain. I want to gain an education, um, gain this possession. I want to get a house someday, I want a car, I got to find myself a man, not me. Um, But, (laughs) sorry. Um, but you guys understand what this is like. Our life is full of these types of things that we're looking to acquire, but our life can't be about those things. We are given a great many things in this life, including our family, our possessions, these things to steward. We're stewards. But when we're talking about the end times as we will this morning, I think we're given an opportunity to self-examine and to see how tightly we're holding on to everything that's physical around us. And I tell you what, those who have a really tight grip on our country those who have a really tight grip on American freedom are going to be in for a little bit of a shock in the coming decade. And I believe that's going to continue because we're going to continue to see God judge a nation that's immoral, that's rejected his truth. And so what we hold on to is going to be shaken. And if we're found to hold on to American freedom, get ready to... Right? But if you're holding on to Christ, if you're holding on to Jesus, Scripture says that we come to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We have been given a kingdom in Jesus that we can hold fast to that will never be shaken. In fact, Paul says he's our anchor heavenward. Jesus is our anchor to heaven. He's the one that locks us in place. And so when we look at the end times, as we will this morning, here in Daniel chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12, we can be excited about it. I don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid if we're in Christ. If if there's people that are watching on Facebook or they're listening in the room, they're like, I don't, I'm, I don't have a relationship with Jesus, then there's some reason to fear. But I'll give you an opportunity at the end of service to let all that fear slide off your back. We've been given stewardship in this life by God, and we can never forget that we're part of an eternal kingdom. We're part of an eternal kingdom. That means that it never ends. It's established outside of our control, and it is ruled by a God who is spaceless, timeless, and immaterial. Amen? We serve a God who is outside of the changing patterns of men, and that's a very comforting thought. It gives us this fearless focus as Christians on the present, meaning that I can focus on my present and not worry about if it's rattling. I, can be, I have to be a steward of this, but I recognize that these things are going to fall away. I can invest in people and in the hearts and lives of others and recognize it doesn't matter if I'm stripped clean of every dollar and every possession by the end of it because last time I checked, they don't dump all your stuff into the coffin with you. They don't shove it all into the furnace with you and somehow it becomes part of your matter and then we show up in heaven like, ah, my guitar. I don't know what you think of, but that's usually what I think of. You know, like, oh, my baby made it. You know, God's like, no, no, you're a baby and you made it. I don't know if that applies to anyone here. But anyway, so you guys, as we begin our study this morning, we're doing so in the context of seeing God's perfect prophetic prediction 
say that five times fast, from the beginning of chapter 11, all the way up through verse 35, which you guys saw in as much detail as I could provide with the time allotted last week. There's more, but if you guys want more of that, I'll give you any notes that I have and encourage you along the path and happy hunting through history. It's fun. I encourage it because when we look at history and we look at biblical prophecy, God never misses. He never misses. So when we look forward into the end times that have not come, you know, things that are, things that were, and have not yet come to pass. We're looking at the things that have not yet come to pass. And so we can expect God to do what? He's always been perfect. He still is perfect. What will he be in the end? He'll continue to be perfect. You guys are sharp. Good job. 11 o'clock crew. You guys got that extra beauty sleep. So... You guys recognize that he will continue to be perfect. So when we look at end times prophecy, we may not know the when, but we know how it's going to roll out. And we see a lot of clarity as to what to expect in the prophetic record of scripture. So chapter 11 shifts from verse 35 to verse 36, which is where we'll pick up from the historical prophecies that we saw fulfilled. And now we'll shift over to things yet to come. What we looked at last week was the Persian Empire really all the way through the Maccabean revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes that we saw in history. Um, it spanned about nearly four centuries of history, that one prophecy, and they were precisely prophesied with incredible detail. It's fantastic to see. I love it. I love that type of historical information. Um, but if it doesn't build our faith, then we're not letting it go all the way. Information is great, but knowledge puffeth up as the King James would say, and love does what? It edifies. Knowledge makes us bloated in our heads. But when we love, when we convert that understanding of who God is into loving one another, which is what we're to do with biblical information, we let that get heart deep and we love one another, that edifies and builds each other up. So we don't want to be puffed up, but it's fun to learn as long as that has legs and takes application in our lives. And so the biblical prophetic record is incredibly and perfectly accurate. And it's a reminder to you and I that God is faithful to keep his word down to every little detail, even when we don't understand it, which Daniel's going to say next week. Yeah, we're not finishing this week, but next week, Daniel's going to be like, I don't get it. You know, he's not going to really understand. He's gonna be like, can you explain to me? Cause I'm not catching this. I don't get what's going on here, but God has still made it very clear. And for the things that we wonder about, we will know, but we know that he's perfectly correct in what he said. So picking up in chapter 11, verse 36, we're going to enter the things to come section of the vision. We switch from Antiochus now to the Antichrist. And that's an important distinction to make because Antiochus is like the teaser. Antiochus is like the teaser trailer to what the Antichrist will do. And that's how scripture portrays him. That's how Daniel portrays him. You see this little thing here? The fulfillment's going to be the little horn that we talked about in the different sections of Daniel's. We talked about this king that will arise and will become greater than all the other ones. He's going to be more fierce than anything we've seen yet. And we're going to see here in this text just what he's going to do. So Antiochus Epiphanes that we look back at in history, we saw him do a lot of horrible things, but the Antichrist will outdo him in every way. And he is yet to come. He is yet to come. Okay, verse 36, Daniel 11. I'll read it. You can follow along, and then we will uh, break this down in smaller sections so we can attempt to grasp as much of it as possible. Verse 36 says, Then the king, that would be the Antichrist, will do whatever he wants. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and he will say outrageous things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed, because what has been decreed will be accomplished. 
He will not show regard for the gods of his ancestors, the god desired by women, or for any other god, because he will magnify himself above all. Instead, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god his ancestors did not know, with gold, silver, precious stones, and riches. He will deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. He will greatly honor those who acknowledge him, making them rulers over many, and distributing land as a reward." So even though the when is unknown for the rise of the Antichrist, the what starts to become clear. And when we see this in Scripture, we notice something about his personality. We notice something about what he's going to do. Now, I'm going to point out something that I think is kind of obvious about the Antichrist and then something that I think is subtle that we often overlook. The obvious thing is is that he's going to be an egomaniac. He's going to exalt and magnify himself above every god, it says, and he'll say outrageous things against the God of gods. In other words, he's going to slander God himself and proclaim to be more powerful than God himself. Now, there's people that live like that now and act like that now. He's going to do it to the ultimate level. He's going to do it to the ultimate level. Paul agrees in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4, speaking of the Antichrist as well. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits in God's temple proclaiming that he himself is God. He's going to sit in God's house and say, I'm the one you're to worship. Ooh, never a good idea, by the way. And I think about how often we do that in our own hearts. He's physically going to do it. But how often is that our attitude towards God? Food for thought. Verse 36, second half of it says, he will be successful until the time of wrath is completed because what has been decreed will be accomplished. Now, this is the subtle thing. The main thing is that we know the Antichrist is going to be an egomaniac. He's going to be all about himself. He's going to proclaim himself. Here's the thing that I don't think that we recognize often. Did you notice what it said about him? He will be what? Successful. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed. Just because someone is successful doesn't mean that God is in what they're doing. Now, think about this for a second. How often do we view, as the church, as Christians, do we view success the way the world views it? I look at somebody and go, well, they've got money, they've got position, they've got all these people with them, they've got an entourage, must be doing something, right? Now, you look at, you look at Hollywood and like, you know, obvious examples of, of sinful lifestyle that we can see displayed for us in the news, and you're like, okay, that's obviously wrong, that's temporary. But I think we get deceived a lot of times as the church because I speak from experience. When, when you're in a room with a bunch of pastors, do you know who all the guys are listening to? The pastor with the biggest church, the most money, the most people, the biggest, you know, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Basically like, huh? Well, the building, yeah, the building too, but I was thinking more of like the biggest uh, audience or impact audience. He's in a big city. He has the most primary people. He's got the prime real estate, so to speak. And it's crazy because... We've experienced this. You get these guys and they'll start talking. The other pastors are on the edge of their seat. And how did you do that? For how long? How many people did you run over? They start going into these things like, okay, we have to figure out how this guy became so successful. Why? Because he's successful, which means that God must be in it. Now, hold on a second. I'm not saying that I'm not saying that if you're successful that God's not in it. What I'm saying is to ascertain if God is, you have to go deeper than what you see. 
You have to go deeper than what you see on the surface. You have to look at Pharisees inside. Because if you had looked at the religious leaders of Jesus's time, you would have had it together. They looked the part. And Jesus said, you're whitewashed tombs. You brood of vipers. That's not a good, that's not a compliment. I am a viper. <laughs> I like that. No, that's not, that's not something that they, that they were like, oh yeah, oh good. He sees us as a brood of vipers. That's fantastic. These, he said things to them they wanted to kill him for. And so the religious leaders were the ones that you would be looking at and saying that they had it all together on the surface. Success is not necessarily a godly thing. In fact, success can be a worldly thing. And we don't measure success as a church the way the world does. Healthy trees that bear godly fruit may not achieve measurable success that the world will praise. You realize that a successful church may be one that you never hear about. It may be one that's so underground that they meet in someone else's building. I hope, like, I hope that that's, that's what this is. I hope that this is something that is infusing health and life and vitality into the church and filling them with the spirit and sending them out. And there's no rah, rah, rah about it. I had a guy come up to me after first service and said, what is the name of this church? And, and I was like, oh, it's, it's transformed. I was like, yes, I don't want them to know. And not in a bad way. I don't want people to have a name splashed. They'll be like, hey, what church do you go to? Oh, I go to this church. You should come and, and join us. It's like family. It's like hanging out with your family. Why? Because our sanctuary is like a living room. And that's really what it is. It's like a really steamy living room. <laughs> but you guys... This is the dynamic. And, and whether the Lord keeps us here or moves us on to another location, this dynamic cannot change. This family is not to change because we don't measure success by looking like we're high production, by looking like we have it all together. If you have me in your life as a friend or a pastor, you know I don't have it together. You know me well enough, and that's good. <laughs> I don't like that we're getting cheers and amens from my worship team. Oh, yeah, bring it. It's a good word. You guys, I... I shouldn't because if I'm going to be real with you guys and not a hypocrite, you need to see through that. You need to see through the Sunday morning looking good. By the way, I've never said that. I'm always like, ha. (laughs) Scariest thing that happens to me every morning is that mirrors in the bathroom. You guys, whoop, yeah, can I get an amen? Anyway, so you guys, that's okay. It's okay if the world doesn't praise us. They should be confounded by our love they should be flabbergasted by the lives that we live but oftentimes the most powerful saints are the ones that you never know the names of because they prayed so much in private because they did a work and they didn't make a lot of noise about it they just went about their lives being faithful and that's what god's asking us to do maybe some of us We'll, we'll have a voice in, in a number of people's lives and maybe some of us will just be faithful to go about our business the rest of our life and that's okay because as long as we're faithful to the Lord and the little things he gives us, we are accomplishing godliness in the everyday life, in the real world. And it's crazy because we look at the world and their view of success is wealth, fame, and comfort. It's wealth, it's fame, and it's comfort. I never need anything. I can do whatever I want. I have this or that. Do you know what godly success looks like? I can only put it plainly. It's a poor carpenter naked and humiliated on a cross. That's what godly success looks like. And that's why Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Believer, 
That's our anthem. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. That is God's success story. God's success story is that he accurately paid for the sins of the world through his son on the cross, and that in three days he rose again to glory. That is God's version of success. And Jesus has said, live like me. Paul has encouraged us in Philippians, adopt the same attitude as Christ Jesus. Have the same attitude and the same focus. Don't count yourself to be better than what you are. In fact, live humbly. Live humbly and submit yourself to a cross. That's God's success story. And it won't go on the front page most of the time. But you know what? That's okay. Because we aren't living for the human reward. We're not living for the praise like the Pharisees with their hands in the air. We are praying the prayer of the brokenhearted on our knees saying, Lord, forgive us sinful people. That's the prayer of our hearts. Verse 37, as we build off of this idea that the Antichrist is a man who is successful, which is not necessarily a good thing. In fact, in his case, it's not a good thing at all. Verse 37, he'll show not show regard for the gods of his ancestors, the God desired by women or for any other God because he will magnify himself above all. In other words, there's no room in his heart for anyone but himself. And there's no room for anyone to be praised around him except for him himself. And instead, he's going to honor a God of fortresses and a God his ancestors didn't know with gold, silver, precious stones, and riches. He'll deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. He'll greatly honor those who acknowledge him, making them rulers over many and distributing land as a reward. Essentially, the Antichrist will worship no one but himself. And interestingly enough, he's the original narcissist. This guy's self-obsessed. You know what's fascinating to me is the comment that says he's not going to serve the God desired by women. Most that I read would agree that this is a statement about the Jewish longing, the Jewish culture of women to bear the Messiah. This is in Daniel's time. The Messiah hasn't come yet. Jesus hasn't come yet. And that that was a desire that they had was to basically give birth to the Messiah because that was such a great honor. It was such an amazing thing to do. And so he's not going to honor, in other words, any God but himself. Doesn't matter if it's the Messiah. Doesn't matter if it's... um, Baal or whatever. He doesn't care. So the Antichrist will serve no one but himself. He's going to love only what makes him stronger and more intimidating. He's going to love fortresses and precious gold. In other words, he's going to want riches and well-fortified cities. He's going to build things up and protect himself and say, like, no one can get over these walls. No one can touch me. I'm too rich. I'm too powerful. I'm untouchable. Verse 40, he gets invaded. At the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle. But the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, horsemen, and many ships. He will invade countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land, and many will fall. But these will escape from his power, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of the Ammonites. He will extend his power against the countries. Not even the land of Egypt will escape. He'll get control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver, over all the riches of Egypt. The Libyans and the Cushites will also be in submission. As you see him in the center of this text in verse 41, invade the beautiful land that says many will fall. This is likely the middle point that's going to happen in the tribulation where he actually drops into Jerusalem and takes up place in the temple, which we'll talk about in just a second. And what we're seeing here is that much the same as Antiochus. Remember, Antiochus was kind of this teaser trailer again to what the Antichrist was going to do. The Antichrist is going to have a lot of military success, just like Antiochus did. He's going to wash through people like a flood. Um, at first, his success in battles with other nations are so overpowering, he's gaining territory. 
and he's attacked by the north and the south. Then he invades Israel, setting up the abomination of desolation, as we've read about in Scripture. And some scholars would agree that when you see this invasion of the north and the south, that this could be Ezekiel 38 and 39. It's a compelling argument. Could be, couldn't be. There's some arguments to be had around it. But it could be a place for it to happen here. It could happen in another location, but it hasn't happened yet. We can agree on that. 38 and 39 of Ezekiel has not happened yet, Gog and Magog. You do see them referred to in several places um, outside of Ezekiel, one of them being in Revelation. Um, And so there's some thoughts around that, but I would suggest that this is a possibility. It's not solid, but it's a possibility that Gog and Magog happens here. The north being drawn in and fighting with him, the Antichrist. The Antichrist will carry out genocidal warfare on other people. He's going to murder without thought. And not only against other nations, but many of the Jewish people will perish. In fact, Zechariah 13, verses 8 through 9, speaks of this moment. And it says, in the whole land, this is the Lord's declaration, two-thirds will be cut off and die, but a third will be left in it. I will put this third through the fire. I will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is our God. The oppression of the Antichrist on the Jewish people during the tribulation period will be so overwhelming, two-thirds of them will perish. But the third that remains is going to turn and cry out to the Lord. They're going to cry out to the Lord, and Jesus is going to answer. However, before that happens in our text, I want to remind you that what you would see if you looked at the Antichrist from a worldly perspective is success, power, all the things that the world values. And most likely the reason that the Antichrist is going to be able to set up the abomination of desolation is because he made a peace treaty with Israel beforehand. And he's going to break that treaty. Some would even say, and I think there's a lot of merit to it, that at the beginning of the tribulation period, when he makes peace with them, that will enable them to build their temple that he will then profane three and a half years later. Compelling arguments there. By the way, can you imagine reading this before 1948? And reading it now, you can, I can see it when I'm there. You walk around Israel, it's like, you can just, it's here. The people are here. The situation's there. You can, and at times when I've been in Israel, I've thought about these prophecies. How many people will die? How many people will perish because of their rebellion and because of sin? It's a heavy weight. Sin is so destructive. Thank God for sending Jesus. Verse 44. But reports from the east and the north will terrify him. Excuse me. He'll go out with great fury to annihilate and completely destroy many. He will pitch his royal tents between the sea and the beautiful holy mountain, but he will meet his end with no one to help him. Wait, did you catch that? He just ended. This is good news. How does it happen? Don't you guys like it when I have conversations with myself? You're like, oh, sure. It's fun just sitting here listening to Mike converse with himself. You should be one of my family members. <laughs> Revelation 16, 13 through 16 describes this moment. Then I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming from the dragon's mouth, from the beast's mouth, and from the mouth of the false prophet. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who travel to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Look, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who is alert and remains clothed so that he may not go around naked and people see his shame. 
By the way, did you notice that that part was colored? It's Jesus speaking. If you look at your text, you have a red letter Bible. That's Jesus talking. So they assembled the kings at the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. No, it's not Bruce Willis's movie. What it is, it means Mount Megiddo. And if you've been to the Valley of Megiddo and you've studied anything about it, you know that that valley is arguably, but I think you'd lose the argument if you argued against it, the most used battlefield in the world, in history. It is the crossroads between the north and the south, between Assyria and Egypt, or the Syrians and Egypt, or the Babylonians coming down to fight against the, the nations of the south. It's the crossroads. All of these nations would be traveling through. And by the way, it's why last week I said, when Daniel's hearing all these prophecies about what's going to happen, and it's talking about the northern kingdoms and the southern kingdoms fighting, he knows where they're going to fight. Those armies are either marching through Israel to fight each other, or they're fighting on Israeli territory. This battle and these battles are going to rage havoc on the Jewish people. And they have. We saw it happen in history, and this is going to be even more so. Because it's the end times. Everything is keyed up a notch. The Antichrist is not this guy who's going to be like, oh, well, it could be this person, it could be that. You're going to know what you're dealing with. This is going to be evil like we haven't seen. And, and as my wife hates the term so much, because we heard it so much in 2020, what the Antichrist does will be unprecedented. It's the, the hot word of like 2020, unprecedented. You know, it's applied to everything. This chicken is unprecedented. I'll leave it there. You guys, Zechariah 14 gives a very detailed account of this moment as well. It's brutal. It's tragic. And we see the culmination of human sin as God ends the fight. God finishes the battle himself. And this will mark the end of the tribulation right here when the, the Antichrist is defeated, which means that the next event is what Jesus talks about in Matthew 24, verses 20, 29 through 30. Verses 29 through 30, it says this. Jesus speaking, immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Right on. Verse 31, he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Ooh, I like this part. Anytime Jesus shows up is my favorite right? People are like, I like lots of things. You know what I like? I like Jesus showing up. Now, please. Right now. I love this part of the story. The return of Jesus will end the Antichrist. Notice this. There is no hope for him. He will meet his end with no one to help him. Now, let me ask a very logical question. If no one can help him, who is he fighting? the king of kings. The answer is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. Shall I go on? Why do we serve so many things in this life when we can serve the king that no one can stand against? The most powerful man to ever walk this earth is going to absolutely be powerless to stop or resist Jesus when he returns. There is no stopping him. It's interesting because in history, we've seen Jesus come as what? The lamb. 
who is slain? How will Jesus return? As the king. Way better than Aragorn. Like Jesus, oh, come on. We don't have Lord of the Rings fans. You guys, when Jesus comes back, he will be the king of kings. No one's standing against him. It's his time. It's his time. What's great is if you believe, as I do, that the rapture of the church will most likely happen before the tribulation time, then that means we'll be coming with him. We'll be with him when he returns. I love that. I love the fact that Jesus is going to rule. You know what? Just make me the mop guy in the kingdom bathroom. I'm fine. I am fine with that. Like, <laughs> just like take the mop, go clean the bathroom. That's what I'm good at. You know, like seriously, you guys, that's all I care about. I just want Jesus to rule. I want him to be king of kings. You guys, and that's an awesome thing. This is where, according to Revelation 19, 11 through 21, the false prophet and the Antichrist are thrown into the lake of fire. Satan is bound with chains and thrown into a pit for a thousand years, and Jesus reigns on this earth. Millennial reign, if you're familiar with the terminology. I hope this is kind of drawing somewhat of a clear line because a lot of times there's a lot of prophecy you can read about in Revelation and Daniel and Ezekiel, and it gets like, wait, when does this happen? I believe this is the clearest line I can draw. God knows, but I think this is the clearest path I can draw for you. And it matters because of what we see happen next. At that time, by the way, that's referring to what we've read in verses 35 um, through, oh, what was it? 45. So in verses 36 through 45, chapter 12, verse 1 says, at that time, speaking of that time, Michael, not me, the other one, the great prince who stands watch over your people will rise up. There will be a time of distress such as never has occurred since nations came into being until that time. Unprecedented, babe. But at that time, all your, that was just for her, all your people who are found written in the book will escape. Verse 2 says, many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life, some to disgrace and eternal contempt. Those who have insight will shine like the bright expanse of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. If you know me even a little bit, you know why we're stopping after verse 3 today. Because I have to talk about that. Before we get there, verse 1, again, summary statement of what we've read thus far about the tribulation, about how it ends. But it gives us something important as we remember back from Daniel. Remember when he was praying and he was crying out to God and it took 21 days for the angel to reach him? Right? He's praying, he's, he's seeking God, and the angel said, as soon as you started praying, I took off, but it took me 21 days to get here to give you this vision. When that happened, I believe that was the beginning of the 70 weeks. I believe. I I'm not saying, I didn't write it down, so I'm just going off memory here. What's interesting about that is that we have this insertion here of Michael. Now, Michael the archangel makes us think of two things. He is, he is the angel, the archangel of Israel. He is the one who watches over Israel. God is placed in that position according to scripture. But also, he reminds us of the spiritual battle that's taking place. He reminds us of the spiritual battle that's taking place over God's people. And it's interesting to me that we see him mentioned here because we need to remember that there are spiritual battles going on around us. And what we learned prior in Daniel is that prayer is our weapon in that battle, that we are partaking in that spiritual battle through prayer and that prayer still is going to continue to be important for people to cry out to God and seek for God and look to God through prayer. Church, it's all throughout scripture. The spiritual battle rages right now. And I think we need a cleanup on aisle five if God opened our eyes to see what was going on in the spiritual realm right here. I think all of us would lose it a little bit. You know, because you don't usually see, guys, the reason I say that is you're like, oh, Mike thinks we're so weak. 
you don't really see people stand their ground in angelic interactions when they're glorified in scripture. You know, you typically see them go down. Daniel did. John did. You know, you see guys like react like, oh, you know, like it's, it's something about, or when they realize because the angel appeared to them in human form, when they actually ascend or do something crazy, they wig out a little bit. I think of Samson's parents, you know, these things happen and it, it kind of wigs people out because that spiritual power is something that exists and is somewhat terrifying to realize and see in human eyes. But what's important for us to remember you guys is that the spiritual battle is happening and that we need to continue to battle there in prayer. We need to continue to battle there in prayer. After Israel's delivered, there's going to be a resurrection of many, it says, who sleep in the dust. This isn't implying soul sleep uh, before the resurrection. Since the faithful go to be with God instantly upon dying, 2 Corinthians 5.8 and Philippians 1.21-23, and the faithless go to a place of suffering also immediately upon dying. From, we read that in Luke 16, verses 22-23. through 23. The word sleep here is used as a metaphor to emphasize the temporary state of bodily death before being physically raised at resurrection. We see an example of that in John chapter 11 with Lazarus. You remember that? Lazarus dies. And Jesus had hung out for a while and didn't go to see him. And then he tells his disciples, he's like, we're going to go see Lazarus now. And, And they're like, oh, yeah. He's like, yeah. He's like, Lazarus is sleeping. Remember? He says he's sleeping. And they're like, well, if he's sleeping... He's going to get better from that cold. Great. The cold part I added. And Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Right? And so Jesus leaves and, and Thomas, the drama queen, let us go and die with him. You know, like they all like have this and they leave. It's funny. Every group of disciples has a drama queen. Um, and Thomas was definitely that guy. Well, if I can't put my hand in his side, my fingers and holes in it, I'm just not going to believe. But Jesus loves the drama queen too. He loves the big mouth as well. That's me, Peter. That's us, right? <laughs> I love just seeing pictures of us and the disciples, don't you? You know, I'm always like, I'm Peter, I'm the big mouth. I walked on water halfway and then sank to my death that Jesus saved me. I said he was Messiah and then a couple minutes later said that he should shut up and then he said, get behind me, Satan. But you guys, you understand that like this, this terminology here is well accepted by the culture. Lazarus wasn't dead for good. Jesus was going to raise him from the dead. And so when he says sleep, he goes, yeah, his body's dead, but I'm going to bring him back. And that's a powerful story. Read John 11 sometime. So although they're telescoped together here, as in common, it's really common in prophecy, the resurrection of the faithful and of the unfaithful that's spoken of are two distinct events that are separated by the 1,000-year Messianic kingdom and the millennial reign. You can read about that in detail in Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6, but it describes that these are going to happen on the other sides, but in biblical prophecy, it's talking about the resurrection of the dead. It telescopes, puts them in the same picture, but they are separated by that time period. Revelation 20 proves it. And so he continues on, and he says this. By the way, this is all really interesting stuff that would take hours and hours and hours to study. Love to do that with you sometime, but not this morning. Verse 3 brings this section to a close, this prophecy to a close, and next week we'll close off the book. Verse 3 says this. Those who have insight will shine like the bright expanse of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. That just made me stop in my tracks when I read it. You realize that this prophecy is speaking about things that are going to happen in Israel with God's people. 
But there's something that we share with Jewish believers in Jesus. We share this, this adoption into Christ, right? Like we've been adopted in. You can read it. Paul talks about that often. Been adopted into the family as Gentiles. We're all one family in Christ. Yet God is not done with his people Israel. That's why there's prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled that apply to them. But as we understand this and we look at this in Scripture, you understand that we share this. Those who have insight will shine like the bright expanse of the heavens. And those who learn, lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Those who place their faith in Jesus are to become like stars that shine and reveal an ever-present image of his love and power. Think about that. Think about stars that shine in the heavens. What can you do about those? You can, and I can, we can do nothing. They're under God's command. They're under his power. And these are things that are present always in an image of his love and power. What do they accomplish when we shine in this way? When we shine like the bright expanse of the heavens because we placed our hope in Christ, what do we accomplish when that happens? What does the scripture say? Lead many to righteousness. Those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever... Those who are shining are going to lead many to righteousness. Church, what is our goal? What is our purpose? What has God placed us here to do? We're here to glorify his name, and we're to lead people to righteousness. We're to bring people to Jesus. As I was reading this verse, I thought of one example that Jesus gave us himself. Jesus gave us one example. Now you think like, well, Jesus is that example. Yes, but he also gave us a person who gives us an example of this, someone who lived during his time. Can you tell me who it was? John the Baptist. Good job. Someone up here got it last time. You guys get a gold sticker as well. So John chapter 5, verses 32 through 35. There is another, Jesus speaking, who testifies about me, and I know that the testimony he gives about me is true. You sent messengers to John, and he testified to the truth. I don't receive human testimony, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Really quick clarification. He's not saying that he rejects John's testimony. Jesus is saying, I don't need to be testified by people. The works I do are testimony enough. He goes, but if you're going to listen to somebody, his testimony is true. Okay? Look at verse 35. John was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. John was a burning and shining lamp. Now, Let's tie it all together with my little thing about success and about what worldly success looks like. How successful did John the Baptist look to people around him? He was a crazy man. And not only before he lost his head, you know, like he was, he was dressed weirdly and he's eating locusts and honey. Like he's out there in the wilderness proclaiming repent. By the way, if you want to be a total outcast, don't wear modern fashion. Adopt a strange diet and preach repentance. The third one's the one I'm really trying to kick you at. You're like, you're like, all right, vegan for life. Just kidding. No, but you guys, uh, that's actually becoming cool now. Now, hold on one minute. Don't get caught up in the GMO free stuff. If you think about this, back when I was a kid, it was MSG. Don't touch MSG. Remember that? Now it's, now it's GMO. You guys think about this for a second. The radicalness of John's message was repentance. 
He was radical because he he preached repentance to God. How did John shine? He shined by making the way straight before Jesus as the prophet said he would. And he did so by preaching repentance. Turn from your sin. Um, Go back just a second to that verse. How do you lead people to righteousness? Repentance unto God. This is why Jesus said he shined or shone bright in the world. John the Baptist did. And this is why those who are leading others to righteousness shine as well. Because those who have been impacted by Jesus preach a message of reconciliation. We read this not too long ago in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We are as his ambassadors given that proclamation. Be reconciled to God. To be reconciled to God, you turn from your sin, repent, and come to him and accept him in obedience. John the Baptist shone because he preached a message of repentance. Church, what do we preach a message of? We're so much better than you and cleaner. John certainly wasn't saying that. What was John saying? Repent. The kingdom of heaven is now. You want a powerful message? Repent. Do you want to live a powerful testimony? Repent. You guys, turn to God. Call others to be reconciled to God. Those who shine, as John the Baptist was an example of this as well, who shine the way that God has called them to shine, will lead people to righteousness because they don't let them sit in their sin. They call them back to be reconciled to God yet again. There are three ways that John went about his business that are good for us to consider. We'll close with these, and I'll make them brief. Number one, John testified about Jesus. Who does the Antichrist testify about? He's all about himself. What is American culture testifying about? So who are we made in the image of? You become what you worship. Hmm. John chapter 1, guilty. I'm just as guilty. Let us live counterculture. This is how. John 1, verses 6 through 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Boy, can I just, can that be me? There was a man sent from God. His name was Mike. Everyone's like, (laughs) I want that to be said, though. I want it to be said that I have an impact in this world because God is the one who sent me. I'm not John, but I want to be used. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that he might believe, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to testify about the light. Christian, take this to heart. We are not the light. We testify about him. We testify for him. So number one, John the Baptist shone brightly because he testified of the light and didn't claim to be the light himself. Second thing, he obeyed Jesus. Matthew three thirteen through 15 is like a perfect example of this. Then Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. But John tried to talk him out of it. I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you, he said. So why are you coming to me? Now you look at that and you're like, John, don't say no to Jesus. You hear what Peter did before? You know, he's, and it happened afterwards. But like, it's that type of thing, right? No, it's not. It's different. Why? Because John is saying it humbly. I'm not worthy to do this. You should be baptizing me. Why would I dip you in the river? Right? And Jesus said, it should be done for we must carry out all that God requires. Jesus says, okay, this needs to happen. And what does John do? Okay. He agrees. John testified of the light, recognizing it was not him and gave glory to God. And he obeyed. He walked in obedience. What's the third way that John shone brightly? Oh, this is my favorite. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. 
John 3, verse 30. John speaking himself, he must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. John magnified God. He magnified Jesus. He magnified the Savior. He, he pointed people to the true source of light. He walked in obedience to him, and he made much of Jesus as he decreased. And so we're faced with the question that we saw lived out in Job's life. If God was to strip us down to absolutely nothing, to absolute zero, would we say the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord, because that is someone who is willing to make great of God and become less and less. John the Baptist recognized that his ministry was to pave the way, not to be the one that everyone looked to. Church, if we want to be image bearers of Christ and not image bearers of the Antichrist, egomaniacs, narcissistic, that means self-obsessed, then we need to be like Jesus. We need to be conformed into the image of Christ. And we need to let him shine through us and give him the glory for it. Because I don't know about you, but I see a lot of people that don't know him. I talk to a lot of people that don't know him. And the way that God has called me to lead them to righteousness is to shine. It's going to come out of the things I say. It's going to come out in the way that I live my life. It's going to be given to me in opportunities. And so many times you're like, I'm just looking for that window to have that conversation with that one guy and be like, Jesus is the answer. You know, like just jump on him and then smack him with the Bible and they're saved. Right? It's not how it works. Do you know the way that most teens who came through my youth ministry said that they got saved? developed a relationship, got to know them, walked with them. They watched you make mistakes. They watched you do things well, and they heard the word and God opened their hearts and the Lord did that work in them. It was no profound thing that came out of my face. It wasn't this profound message that came out of me. It was God opening their hearts and the spirit spoke to them because I possess nothing without him. I'm a dead stick. It's literally what he says. (laughs) you're a dead branch if you're not connected to me. And so we want to be connected to him. Shine, let him work through us. Let us be those trees that are satisfied to stay under the world's radar. And I'm not saying we're not reaching people. I'm saying we are reaching people in our everyday lives and we don't need a platform. We don't need a stage. We don't need a microphone to do it. All we need is an opportunity, just a window. Just crack open that window for me. Let us show people who Jesus is. Let us walk in obedience to him and let us make much of his name as he increases and we decrease. Those who have insight will shine like the bright expanse of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Powerful word. Lord, as we come to you in this time to worship, as we prepare our hearts even now, Lord, to close out this amazing book of Daniel next week, We are so thankful for the impact that it's had on us. Not only, Lord, to give us the ability to look at history and see how you fulfilled your word, but, Lord, also it has enabled us to look ahead, to see that you're going to fulfill everything that you said you would do. And, Lord, that we can grow in our faith because you've never failed. 
Lord, that we can strengthen our weak knees, as it says in Hebrews 12, that we can lift ourselves up, we can stand firm and strong because you have been faithful to teach us and discipline us from your word. God, the discipline's good. When you call us out and you point things out in our lives that we need to be doing, Lord, things that we have gone astray, that's good for us. You're not condemning us. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. But Lord, there is correction because we all need it. So Lord, allow this passage, along with this example that we saw at the end, Lord, of we want to be those who shine. Lord, in these end times, which I fully believe these are the end times, and I know that my teachers and my predecessors, Lord, that they all felt the same way. The apostles felt that way. Yet, Lord, I look around me, and I can't imagine with all these labor pains that it's not about time for the birth. Lord, I just ask that you would find us being faithful. Lord, that you would find us with our lamps full of oil, And that you wouldn't catch any of us burying our talents. But Lord, that we would be using the things that you've given us for your glory. That we would be living our lives with anticipation for you coming. But also an absolute focus on why you have us here. And that is to lead the lost to righteousness. To be living epistles. And Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the ministry you've given us. We give you all the glory for it. God, if if myself or anyone ever tries to stand up and take glory from you for what's happened here, just smack me. Lord, don't let me get away with that. This is all you. I can't take credit for any of it, and neither can any of the leadership. Lord, we recognize this is a work of your spirit. And it's a good work because it's what you've called us to do. And Lord, may you find us making much of your name and less and less of our own. Keep us humble. Lord, may there be genuine love. And I pray that the world would sit up and take notice when they see the love amongst this body and that they would glorify God, that they would want what you've done in us, not because we're awesome, but because you are. Let's keep our heads bowed and let's just take a moment and then we're going to worship together.